Hallelujah to the one who reached for me. Praise the son of suffering. Isn't that cool? Beautiful, beautiful message in that song. Glad you can be here with us today. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you can worship with us. If I haven't met you yet, I'd look forward to doing that. And I'll meet you up here afterwards if, if that works. I want to remind you quick, just a little housekeeping here. We have... Uh, our congregational meeting is tomorrow night, so if you're a member, we encourage you to be here. If you are a regular tender, we encourage you to be here. We want you to find out what's going on. We are having a potluck from 6 to 7, so join us for that, the time of food and fellowship, and then the meeting will be at 7 o'clock. And again, you'll have a chance to hear some ministry reports and uh, find out what's going on and ask some questions and hopefully get the answers that you need and a uh, good time together. So join us for that tomorrow night for the congregational meeting. Story is told of three kids who were competing on the schoolyard, bragging about their parents. The first one says, my dad scribbles a few words, of, on a, words on a piece of paper, and he calls it a poem, and they give him 50 bucks for it. The second one says, that's nothing. My mom scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. She calls it a song, and they give her 100 bucks. Third one says, I got you both beat. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a sermon, and it takes eight people to collect all the money. I thought that was a great segue into reminding you that there's offering boxes in the back. We don't collect offering like we used to. That's shameless, isn't it? But anyway, just part of our worship is in giving our tithes and offerings, so thankful, you're thankful for your faithfulness in that regard. Last week, we were talking about the Ephesian elders, and uh, we're going to be in Acts 21 today, so you can turn there and be ready. But last week, Paul reminds them of what he'd, he'd taught them, and, and he, he's saying, listen, I always pointed you toward salvation, toward the gospel, toward the need for repentance for your sins, for asking forgiveness in the name of Jesus, who died on the cross for you, who rose again from the grave and invites you to be his child through faith. And last week, Pastor Thomas uh, pointed out how we're to lead in the pattern of Jesus. And if you don't feel like a leader, remember that leadership is influence. Paul earned the right. He said, you saw and you know how I was with you. How I led with humility, with heart. How he, he, he even cried with him, right? And, and through trials. So we use our life for the Lord when we lose it for others. He says, listen, pay, pay careful attention, be alert. And the instruction there for elders is, as elders, you are stewards of that which is not yours. And this beautiful phrase that came out last week, nothing is more valuable than those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. I don't know how you're doing today, but if you know Jesus, can I just remind you, nothing is more valuable than those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. The leader knows that he or she needs Jesus the most and sets the example accordingly. Would you pray with me before we begin today's message? Father, we thank you for your goodness, and we do pause to praise you because you are worthy. You are God, and there is no other. And it is in the, a spirit of humility coming before the one true God and raising our voices in song and praying to you and looking at your word, we, we do it as worship for you are worthy. 
And Father, we're grateful for the good news of the gospel of Christ, that we can be your children through faith in what Christ accomplished on the cross and the empty tomb. Father, we ask that you would work in the midst of East Campus today as they have their service, Lord. Just bless their time and work there in a mighty way. Father, in our own hearts here in this service, we just commit it to you. We ask you to work in our hearts and speak to us and be glorified. Have your way, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the risen Savior. Amen. Our text today is really uh, Acts 21, 1 through 16, but I'm going to actually back us up into Acts 20, just a couple verses, just for a little bit further context. So let's start in Acts 20, verse 36, and we'll read through verse 6 of 21, just for starters. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful, sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail, and we had come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. We sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Have you ever had one of those occasions or those uh, circumstances that, that make you see something different about somebody? It's maybe, maybe it's a positive thing or maybe it's a negative thing. Uh, maybe it's a funny situation that reveals a sense of humor in someone. And you're thinking, I, I never knew they had a sense of humor. Or I never knew they had such a contagious laugh. I had the opportunity to have dinner in the home of the president of the university of which I was attending. And, and it was neat to see him in that context, to see him just relaxed and joyful and even humorous. A, a stressful situation might reveal how somebody can be amazingly calm, cool, and collected. Or, or the opposite. They just, you know, the, the wheels come off. A sad situation might reveal levels of compassion. It might reveal empathy that you'd never seen from them. Maybe a trial reveals a calloused heart. Some years back, I had a couple in my office and I'd been, always been impressed by the man. We connected quickly over motorcycles. We rode together sometimes, and I found him always to be full of Scripture when he spoke and quick to share his faith. And, but this particular night, his wife was complaining of cruel behavior, of demeaning verbal treatment. I found this strange because it wasn't the guy I knew. In my, in my office, she said something, and it triggered him, and he creatively and cruelly and loudly told her off. It was horrible. 
I had no idea he was capable of that. I addressed it to my office, and he left that night, and I never saw him again. Certainly, you can relate to those kind of moments when pressure comes on, and we all have those moments of our own where we just think, oh. But when Paul comes under pressure here, what does he say? He he says, I must go, constrained by the Spirit to do so. He says, I don't know what's going to happen to me there except for the, 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 the Spirit has been revealing that there's going to be prison and affliction coming for me. But Paul just wants to be faithful to carry out the ministry Jesus asks of him, to be faithful to the end, to testify to the gospel of grace. So here in this parting occasion here at the end of 20, you have them, they've knelt down together, they're praying, they're, they're weeping, they embrace and, and kiss a tear-filled goodbye because this is it. I would suggest to you it's a powerful picture of unity, right? Of love and of friendship. Have you ever been there and been at a point where you have to say a tough goodbye uh, to, to a parent or to church friends or to a child? not knowing if you will see them again, or maybe knowing you won't. Paul, Paul's not terminally ill here, but they know that this is it. This is going to be their last time with him. And it's a powerful parting, a painful one. I like it when our Bible, especially in narrative scripture, allows us to take a closer look at these individuals. Today's text allows us to see a little further into the heart of the great Apostle Paul, but also the hearts of his friends. And what we will see here is good. So note the journey. They're they're traveling again, and they're following this this lower line back, if you see on on the map. And they're coming from the upper middle part there, and they're working their way from Kaz to Rhodes to Patera. And they found a ship headed to Phoenicia. Uh, this, there's some evidence here that would suggest that they had chartered their own ship, perhaps, because Paul seems to be calling all the shots as to uh, where they go and declaring destinations. Not certain about that, but it seems like that. They see Cyprus on their left as they travel uh, further down towards Syria, landing at Tyre. When they get there, they went looking for the disciples in that region. Now, all the younger people in here, me included, of course, uh, have to try to imagine what it would be like without cell phones to try to find people or, or try, to, try to do that with, without landlines. So they arrive in this, in this city and they have to go and, and find people. That means they've got to go around, they've got to ask around, they've got to say, hey, have you seen so-and-so? Have you seen so-and-so? And, I, and if you've ever gotten a chance to surprise a loved one, that's a, it's a neat experience. It can be fun to do. We've seen those videos or those occasions, maybe you've experienced it, where a soldier comes back from deployment and surprises the family. Those are neat moments, right? They're neat moments to experience. So just imagine these followers of Christ who, who love Paul. They're in an occasion, and all of a sudden in the room, they, won't see, they see somebody familiar, and they're going, wait, that's Paul. They're all there, and there's this wonderful time to get together, unexpected but delightful surprise. And they get seven days together. And it's interesting here that, that Luke says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Luke seems to throw that in here with no further comment, and he describes the big group accompanying them as the, they go to the ship to say goodbye. So once again, we have this Paul parting with loved ones. 
kneeling for prayer and saying their farewells and no doubt aware that this was goodbye. Let's pick it up in verse 7. And when we finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptalmus and greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So a little more travels here. They go a little further on their journey. They're at Tyre, and then they go to Patalmas for one day and on to Caesarea to Philip's house. Here we have two previously mentioned people again. Philip, one of seven chosen back in Acts chapter 6. I don't know if you remember back that far. He was a man of good repute, full of wisdom, and full of the Spirit of God. Remember, they had to care for the widows. Then we had Agabus, a prophet who showed up in Acts chapter 11, who foretold of the famine. So we see him again. This time he has a message for Paul and for those there. Luke's account of this suggests that Agabus first gives this prophecy using a visual aid and then words. Can you imagine the scene? Agabus just comes in, but he has that serious, I've got a prophecy to share look on his face, right? And, and he just beelines for, for Paul and all eyes are on him. And he reaches and takes Paul's belt from him. And, and then back then a belt would be a, a rope or a strap that would go around the waist twice and be tied in front. So Agabus takes this belt from Paul and begins to tie up his own feet and then to tie his hands. Quite a scene. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Pretty dramatic scene, right? I mean, this type of prophecy was not new. In the Old Testament, when King Solomon uh, turns from the Lord and is not doing the right things, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 29, we read this. And at that time when Jeroboam went out, to, went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. And Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were there alone in the open country. And Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and will give you ten tribes." He's offering a visual aid with this. And, 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 and let's not forget about the prophet Ezekiel. What a crazy, crazy job of having to illustrate with his own body and his own life 
what will happen to Jerusalem, how it will come under siege because of their sinful and idolatrous ways. So the illustration, this visual aid that Agabus uses here is, not, is a familiar way of doing it. And, and they have every reason to believe that this prophecy will come true. And immediately it, it evokes concern from those who loved and cared for Paul. Luke himself was among them. He said, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Uh, just as a side note here, I want you to catch this, that, that in essence, there was nothing wrong with them advising that him not to go. Simple fact is God has created with us with an intellect, with an ability to reason. But as a result, it's possible that well-intentioned, godly people can try to dissuade believers from following the Lord's will. And I realize that sounds extreme, but I want you to think about it. Think of the individuals thinking about going to missions in, in, a, in a foreign land. Maybe your response to them is, well, you're, you're pretty young. Are you sure? It's kind of dangerous. You're not married yet. Wouldn't you like to have a family and then maybe do it? Or maybe somebody wants to be radically generous. And you go, boy, that's great. I, I love your spirit there, but uh, are you saving yourself enough? Or, or maybe somebody wants to go to a dangerous place and share their faith. And, 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 and the advice is, well, wouldn't you be safer in a group? Why don't you get to get a group together? Or, or better yet, why don't you share your faith right around here? It's a real good neighborhood. Well-intentioned. Good reason. Sound, sound intellectual concepts. But see, the problem was that Paul knew that God wanted him to go up to Jerusalem. For Paul, disobeying is not even an option. If you back up into chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's not depressed. He's not wishing self-harm upon himself. He, he just understands what he needs to do. Think of what he wrote to the church in Philippi in chapter 1, verse 21. He said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So notice Paul's response to the appeals of his friends. Look at 21, verse 13. And Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Once again, for Paul, disobeying is, the Holy Spirit's leading is not an option. Don't forget that Paul already declared that the Holy Spirit had been revealing to him personally that imprisonment and affliction awaits him. So he's not disagreeing with the, the prophecy of Agabus here. Rather, it's an incredible display of faith and devotion to Christ and to the gospel message. What? For the name of Jesus, he says. I would hope that this would remind us of the Lord's attitude about facing the cross. 
Matthew's gospel records for us that Jesus was telling his disciples what he must go through, that he must suffer and, and be put to death. And what does Peter do? He says, Lord, no, right? This must not happen. Not a bad response from Peter. A loving one, for sure. But what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's look at the last two verses, and I'll make some observation here. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. We're moving on again, more goodbyes. I want to take a little bit of extra time and talk about some observations that we can make here from the text. And I'm going to ask that you allow me to do so by first asking them as questions. So first of all, what do we do with the fact that Philip has four unmarried daughters who prophesy? So what do we do with that? It's kind of a weird uh, segment of Scripture. Second, does a conflict appear here as it pertains to the direction of the Holy Spirit? And then is there disobedience? And, and why is it even here? What do we get from it? Third, if you're Paul and the Holy Spirit has been telling you that imprisonment and affliction awaits you and then Agabus comes in and puts this display on, then what do you do? What are your options if you are the Apostle Paul? Or maybe it's better said, do you have an option if you are the Apostle Paul? Fourth, if you are Paul's friends and co-laborers in Christ, what do you do with the prophecy of Agabus? Do you just stop and say, oh, that's a shame, Paul? Or are you more emphatic? You say, no, Paul, don't, do, don't go. No matter what you do, don't go. And, and maybe you go to the point of physically restraining him. Paul, you're not thinking clearly. You're, you're, you just got told, and, and, and you even said that, that the Spirit's been telling you the same thing, so stop. Don't do it. Matter of fact, we're just going to restrain you. And you list the reasons why. So were they wrong to stop him? Now, I'll attempt to give you answers to my own questions. You know, a guy should ask questions that are easy to answer, then he can just easily answer them right, right? But anyway, I don't. First of all, what do we do with these daughters of Philip? Uh, first of all, I think it's noteworthy that Paul takes no issue with Philip's daughters who prophesied. There's no, no confrontation there. There's no tension. Luke seems to want us to know about them, but it's a very much seems to be just kind of an added phrase in there. It would seem that they were serving the Lord in this capacity. Whenever we see something like this, we always have to look at it in the, in the, through the lens of all of Scripture. We've got to say, okay, what does Scripture say as a whole? And then move forward from there. What I will say with clarity is this is not a central point of this text, so I'll move on only after I say that too often 
women are underutilized and underappreciated in the realm of church ministry. And I'm sorry that's the case. So just hear me say, I appreciate you. I'm grateful for all that you do. Is there conflict between what the Spirit has said and even what Paul's doing? What do we do with that? Uh, let's go back to verse 20 again, in, 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 or 22 in chapter 20. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. So, is there conflict here? Now, I'd say the answer is clearly no, and here's why. The same Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, can commission and call Paul. He can also then warn him of what it's going to be. And he can also alert the others as to what it's going to be. There's not a conflict here. More importantly, we see it very clearly in the text that Agabus did not say the Holy Spirit instructs the owner of this belt not to go up to Jerusalem. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say don't go. No, he he told them, here's what's going to happen when you do. It's not don't go, it's, it's going to be rough and this is what's going to happen. And I would say that this, this prophecy was really more for those who were with Paul than Paul himself because Paul had already been told by the Spirit that affliction and imprisonment awaits. Third, what, 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 is, what are Paul's options here? Sure, he could rebel, you, you and I have had those occasions where maybe the Spirit of God is prompting us to do something and we in turn run from it or we excuse it away or we, we look at our watch and we say, oh, you know, it's just, I'm not going to have time for this conversation. I got to keep my schedule. Therefore, I got to keep moving or whatever, or I can't give that much or it's going to put things too tight. We have all of our lists. And so maybe we have those moments when we rebel from God. And so we say, certainly Paul had the option of rebelling. But we also have to remember when we look at all that the Spirit inspired him to write, I want want you to know something very clear about Paul. Paul understood who he was in Christ, at least as much as a finite mind could. So Paul understands that that for him to, to now start living according to his desire and his will is contradictory to who he actually is. What does he say? We are new creatures in Christ. If he understands his identity as a Christ follower and, and one who does what, what the Spirit leads, he can't go against that. So to run would re- require denying who he actually is in Christ, arguably leaving him with no option but obedience. Fourth, Paul's friends and co-laborers. Did they do the right thing or not? I would argue they did exactly the right thing. What did they do? They expressed love and care for their friend, for their brother in Christ. They're going, no, Paul. We know you're zealous for the gospel, but certainly there's other places God can use you. Look at how much he's using you here, and there's other places. Just, Just don't go there. I mean, Agabus just gave that prophecy, and the Spirit even testified to you that that hard things are coming. So don't go. Are they doing the wrong thing? No. 
They're loving Paul. They're caring for him. And we see it especially as you read the whole context. Look back at 13 and 14 with me again. And Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice this. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. For them to have persisted and not come to the point where they said, let the will of the Lord be done would have been the problem. But they support him even in a decision they don't want him to make. As believers, we're to boldly follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to go where he calls and to do what is required for the furtherance of the gospel. But it might put pressure on us. And what gets revealed in you when the pressure is on? If you're like me and you don't like that sometimes. Would your life look different if your desire was to do everything for the glory of the name of Jesus? Would it look different than it does now? If you did everything for the glory and for the name of Jesus? And if it would look different, how so? And, and maybe that needs to be the model you seek. Another question, who, who are the believers in your life that, that you're deeply connected with? so much so that the thought of not being near them is painful. Brothers and sisters in Christ, community is so important. That's why we have community groups. That's why we have different groups that you can meet in and, and get together with and have support so that you have that care and people that will pray for you and be with you and, and walk with you and, and even say, what are you doing when you're going off course? You need that. Community is important. Literally yesterday, I got the mail from the mailbox, and as I just sifted through it, there was a card in there with my name on it, and I opened that card. And this card was, was from a life group back at my church in Freeport. And they wrote within that, we want you to know we're praying for you, we're praying for your wife, we're praying for your family, we're praying for Parkview Church. And they all signed it and wrote a little note with it. This, this wasn't even the life group that my wife and I were in. It was just one of the groups. And how beautiful. They have nothing to gain from that, at least not in an earthly sense. But it's just, you're not with us, but you're in our thoughts, you're in our prayers. Community is important. It binds us in an amazing way. Some years back, I was dealing with a very difficult church as the superintendent. This church was in southern Illinois, and they just had problem after problem. And they brought in a pastor who had retired years prior, and he was willing to come in and help them. His name was Don. I met with Don once a month at a ministerials for, for several years. I just got to know and appreciate him. He was getting older and older, and they just wouldn't let him go. He loved the congregation so well, and I was so thankful he was there because it was such a, a difficult church to work with. I just appreciated him more and more. And here's this man getting more and more up into his years. And he and his wife had served in small churches their whole life. They had very little to their name. And they're living in this parsonage. And, and I noticed that he didn't show up to one of the, the meetings. And so I just put a quick call out just to see how he was. I called the church line instead of his cell phone. And just to 
that way he could answer if he wanted to. And the, the church office informed me that, that he wasn't there anymore and that he'd become very ill and had moved with his wife to Tennessee to live with one of their sons. I asked a few more questions and found out he was terminal, he was dying. I remember just grieving that and, and then wanting to have a conversation with him. And so I sought the number out. And I remember just praying and just building up the nerve to make that phone call. I knew it was going to be difficult. And I called him up and what a joy to talk to this man. How quick he was to ask how things were going, ask how my family was, ask how the church was, how, ask how the district ministry was going, and, and how joyfully he talked about his opportunity to serve alongside of me. And just days before he dies, he's praying for me on the phone. He's praying for me. The man's dying and he knows it. What a beautiful, beautiful time difficult phone call and it was it was that goodbye like you read about in the last verse of chapter 20 it's that we won't talk again until then on this side of heaven our conversations are done beautiful if you are in Jesus Christ if he's your lord and savior i want you to know that you have access to the deepest most beautiful community possible because of the gospel of Christ our world can only look at it and wonder. And our world can bond over different things and connect over other things, but they cannot connect like we as believers in Christ can connect because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that unifies us. It's beautiful, and you need it. So I ask you, do you have a deep bond with other believers who encourage you in your faith? True friends in Christ. Are you really willing to suffer for the gospel message and even going into difficult places for the name of Jesus? Are you opening, open to follow the Holy Spirit as he leads?